This message by Toby Kurth, entitled Blessed Are the Peacemakers, was recorded at Spring Church on October 20, 2019. The text for this message is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Today's reading is from Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So this morning, please welcome Toby Kurth. He is not only the senior pastor of Christ Church in San Francisco, uh, and we are sister churches, but he's also a dear brother in Christ who has blessed Wellspring richly over the years. So would you join me in welcoming uh, Toby as he delivers God's word? Thank you. Well, it's always good to be here. I'm so glad to see all you guys. If I haven't got a chance to say hi to you, and uh, um, please make sure that we get to chat before. But it's always a, a pleasure coming out, and I'm so grateful. As you guys know, I'll say it every time I come, uh, Christ Church would not exist without the sacrificial heart of this church. So we just celebrated our 10th anniversary um, last September. Yeah. But it was an opportunity to really just trace back through God's faithfulness and our story. And, and Sam had sent a video to share as a part of our story. But it was great just to see at every step along the way how God's met us. But the foundation and our launch pad and our support was all here. So we wouldn't have existed without your guys' sacrificial love and service. So we are so grateful for our continued partnership. Uh, we had an amazing time in Villafranca this last uh, summer. And you guys will go this next summer, and then we'll go back again. So I just love the connections we have in Malawi, the connections we have in Spain, and just the continued family we have between churches. Well, let me go ahead. Sudian's so trying to sit out of my line of sight today. He's afraid I was going to—I wasn't going to make a comment, so I'm going to have to hide from me. All right. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about who you are and who we are. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see more of who our identity is in today, that we would be able to ask ourselves how much of our identity is really grounded in Christ and how much of our identity are we finding elsewhere and what are the implications of our identity in Christ. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here today still exploring faith, that you would give them a deeper and richer understanding of who you are and who Christ is and of the amazing forgiveness and transformation that's available in Christ. I pray that you would help me to clearly and faithfully proclaim your word and I pray that we would all leave here today understanding it more deeply and desiring to follow Christ more fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible is rooted so much from the very beginning to the very end in helping us understand identity, helping us to understand who we are. And I think if you look at it, all of us have an ethics. We have an ethical framework that kind of guides the way we make decisions. And the question is, where is your ethical framework grounded? And I'm going to base what we're talking about today, Blessed Are the Peacemakers, in two verses. The one that was just read to us, Blessed Are the Peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And you see even there, it's grounding identity. It doesn't say blessed are those who decide that they're going to go and be peace. Part of the nature of us being children of God, of being adopted into God's family, is that he makes us peacemakers. And Genesis 1.27 reminds us that everything about our identity is found in God. God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. That's the very foundation of our understanding of what it means to be a human being. If we're going to understand who we are, since we are created to be reflecting beings, since we are created to be image bearers, we have to go to God and understand who he is first. There's this idea that theologians talk about of the indicative and the imperative. 
The indicative is a statement of fact about who you are. The imperative is then a statement of what you're called to do. And what you'll find in Scripture is the imperative, what you're called to do, is always rooted in the indicative. It's always rooted in who you are. God doesn't say go out and just behave a certain way and try to become something. He says, no, I've adopted you into my family. I've made you a dearly loved son. I've made you a dearly loved daughter. Now, as a result of your identity, go out and live this way. So as you think about our current environment and and what's shaping us in our culture, in our cities, and where we live, there is so much division, isn't there? There is so much strife. There are so much people finding identity in all kinds of different things. And I would say that the only way a broken humanity knows how to do identity, knows how to do anything that looks like unity, is a unity of opposition against the other. So you decide who your crew is, who your tribe is, and then you define yourself over and against another tribe, and you give yourself the right and the freedom to treat that other group however you want to treat them. In fact, so much of the history of the world is just a history of tribalism and violence and rivalry, isn't it? I mean, think about this. Like, this is how bad this is in so many ways. When in our movies is the only time you see all of humanity uniting as one? It's alien invasion. There always has to be an other for our unity. But the reality is God created us as image bearers to have a unity of commonality in our identity in Him. Now, we're broken and there's sin, and so we need Christ to redeem us and to renew us. But our core identity as human beings is always meant to be found in the commonality we have as God's people, the commonality we have as image bearers of God. But, but again, we have to be honest about understanding our identity and where we come from. So many in our world are determining their identity based on who they're going to associate with and who they're going to separate from. And our current political environment is such a horrible illustration of how this works. And, and, and the church is getting caught up in it in the same way. How are we defining our identity? Who, who do you give yourself the right to dismiss or to denounce? Who, let me put it another way. Who do you give yourself the right to not treat as a full image bearer of God? And we all do that, right? We, we, we can't speak in a way that diminishes somebody else's humanity if we're finding our identity in Christ. And yet all over social media and all over our culture, people are really speaking in ways that aren't marked by civil discussion. They're marked by denying whatever you know, someone else is saying so you can find more validity in who you are. Now, in the academic world, they call this identity politics. And according to most that write on identity politics, each of your identity as, as a human being is socially constructed. Who you are is a combination of the social environment you were raised in and the decisions you've made about who you want to be. And, and a lot of what they're saying makes sense, right? So if you think about this and unpack it, things like your, your clothes, your cars you drive, the education you pursue, your job choice, the music you listen to, the bands you follow or don't follow, the art you like or don't like, your hairstyle, your shoes, the television programs you watch or don't watch, and on and on and on all say something about how you're constructing your identity and how you want yourself to look to the outside world. Now, some of that's unavoidable, but some of that we need to ask ourselves a deep question. What is having the, the lion's share of influence and in how I'm shaping my identity and understanding who I am? So the question for us is, how is Christianity any different? Is it just one socially constructed identity among others? Now, what we need to understand is Christianity is not a socially constructed identity. Parts of it certainly can be that way, but that's not what we're after. It's not a social movement. It's not anything like what we see in these other worlds, or at least it's not supposed to be. be being a Christian is not about adopting a series of external behaviors. It's not about following a certain set of rules. It's not about living your life to try to become a better person. Christianity is not about moral conformity. And Christianity at its core, it's not even a worldview. It's not one among many philosophies that you get to, you get to decide whether or not it works for you. 
None of that makes somebody a Christian. The fact is that, that all of these elements of identity can be socially constructed. So what's different about us? We believe in the Almighty God who through the power and work of Jesus Christ supernaturally and radically transforms those who are His. He adopts you into His family. He makes you a dearly loved son. He makes you a dearly loved daughter forever. And He changes your identity from the inside out. Right? All those illustrations that Jesus uses in Scripture are all about inside-out transformation. So streams of living water flow from a heart that has been transformed. Right? A vine bears fruit. Why? Because it's grafted in. The branch bears fruit because it's grafted into the vines. It, it's connected to Jesus. It, it, the power and the transformation and everything about it comes from Christ. And God says to each and every one of you that's a follower of Jesus, I am yours and you are mine and you will be forever. Nothing can ever separate you from my love now and forever. And that's a radical transformation at the core of your very identity. God alone is the one that can make you His. And it's an inside-out transformation. So if we look out and see that humanity is always dividing, humanity is always doing an opposition against the other, we have to go back to God and say, what's God's ethics? How does God inform us that we are to treat other human beings on this planet? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Christ is always uniting and not dividing. The main idea we're going to talk about and reinforce today is that we need to see people as Jesus sees them. And I would argue there's really only two categories of human beings um, in the world. And one's actually a subcategory of the other. There are only broken image bearers that need Jesus, of which we are, we are them. There is no other for us. And then of those that have been redeemed and renewed and saved in Christ, they're brothers or sisters. So you have two options when you're looking at humanity. Humanity that's created in God's image, and you're called to treat them with dignity and love and honor because they're an image bearer of God. And then there are those that have been saved into God's family alongside of you, and they're called brothers or sisters, and you're called to have an even deeper and more unique love for them. So there is no human being on the planet that you are allowed to dismiss, discount, or diminish in any way, shape, or form. That's first, that, that, that's our ethics. That's our ethical framework is that every human being is an image bearer of God and every human being is entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. So first, what does it mean to be an image bearer? Well, again, going back to Genesis one twenty seven, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is only one humanity. And every human being, because they're an image bearer of God, is entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. And that has to inform everything about how we engage anyone. From, from in the workplace, to the homeless person on the street, to somebody across social media, everyone. Dignity, worth, honor, and love. Joe Hennigan says it this way when he's talking about the image bearer nature. God made us to be like Him, to reflect His character back to Him, and to refract His character out to the world. Which means that it's also much more than a theological statement. It's a philosophical statement, a political statement, a sociological statement, a missional, pastoral, and ecclesiastical statement. This is not just head knowledge. If we're made in God's image, then every human being, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter what they have done or have, or have had done to them, possesses dignity. This profound truth is meant to capture our hearts and give good work for our hands. It's, this was the foundational principle behind the whole civil rights movement. You'll find it throughout all of Martin Luther King Jr.'s writings. This is the foundational idea of the very concept of human rights. See, the reality is we take so much for granted in our modern world. We, we think human rights exist because we're in a progressive democratic nation. No, no, no. Human rights would never have existed if Jesus Christ didn't walk the earth. 
the, the, ex, the ethics of the Roman Empire was might makes right. The ethics of the Roman Empire was slaves or people that were of lower classes were less than full human beings. They were less than, and that was okay. You go from every culture on every continent across the world, and no concept of human rights exists. Among the Jewish people, there was a bit of one, but they missed it because they thought that they alone were the favored nation of God and missed their role as the priesthood to the nations. Human rights, the idea that people are entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love, would not exist if Christ had not walked the earth. Charities, hospitals, selfless, sacrificial systems and ways of thinking about humanity and serving humanity would not exist if Christ had not walked the earth. Jesus in Matthew 5 says this, You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Again, connected to identity. What does it mean to be a child of God in heaven? It means that you're loving your enemies and even praying for them. If we're honest, we don't really believe that, or at least don't believe it all the time. If someone comes at me, I have the right to go back at them. Don't I? If someone insults me, I have the right to go and insult them. If someone diminishes me, then I should diminish them in return. This idea, this challenging idea, is also behind South Africa not descending into bloody warfare after apartheid ended. That Desmond Tutu, because of the idea of the image bearer nature of God, taught all of his people and all the nation that I cannot diminish you without diminishing myself. That our humanity is bound up together. We are all image bearers of God. So when I seek to diminish somebody else in any way, I'm diminishing the common humanity that we have. And this is really hard if we're honest. But it's not a cliche thing. Jesus isn't saying, like, love your enemies when you feel like it. Or this is a cool idea that that you can just let pass in one ear and out the other. This is a core teaching, right? This is Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff. Foundational to your identity, and it's true of us because it's true of Him. What did Christ do? Even at the point of crucifixion, can you imagine that? If anyone is entitled to to be completely and totally judged and dismissed and destroyed, certainly it's those that are nailing Christ to the cross, isn't it? And what does he say? You guys know the words. Father, crush them because they're doing me in. No, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even at the point of greatest sacrifice, even at the point of greatest injustice, Christ is advocating for compassion and for love and for common humanity. We had the opportunity this summer to go and serve in the English camp in Villafranca. And we stayed around for a few weeks after and, and went to visit some friends in the Netherlands. And my wife's long, lifelong dream really has been to visit Corrie ten Boom's house um, in Harlem in the Netherlands. And if there's a book called The Hiding Place, which you have, if you have not read the book, I would strongly recommend reading the book. But it's her account of what she did during World War II. She and her father and her sister, along with the help of some others, they were able to shelter and push off to safety 800 plus Jewish people that otherwise would have been tagged and sent to execution camps. Um, and ultimately then... Um, ended up being turned in by a traitor, by a Dutch person, and herself and her sister going to an extermination camp. She miraculously escaped. Her sister died. Her dad died in custody. Her story's insane. But what's amazing about it is how she's really wrestling through her identity in Christ and what it means. And she has the police captain. Here's the other thing that's amazing, actually. So if, if when you go and visit in person, she has a little watch shop with an apartment above it on the corner here. And mind you, they've 800-plus Jewish people have been smuggled through here. So this is here. 60 yards down here is the police station, which has been largely infiltrated by Nazi soldiers. 
and 120 yards down the other way is the town square with a city hall that had been entirely taken over by the German secret police. So 150 yards this way, 60 yards this way, and they're smuggling 800 plus Jews through. Talk about incredible danger. Talk about like incredible willingness to sacrifice and lay your life down for anyone that comes your way. That's what they were doing. And so the police captain summons in Corey Tim Boom, and she thinks, oh man, I might be, I might be caught. And the police captain says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to put you at ease. I'm with you. Half of our department's with you, and we're sheltering you, and we're protecting you. But there's a traitor in the police department that keeps turning people in, turning in your friends and turning in your network. I can't get in directly, but is there anyone in your network that can execute this person? Now, think about it, right? This is a Dutch person that is turning over those that are trying to save Jews and other persecuted people from Nazis. You might think, okay, well, yeah, off the guy, right? You'll save more lives. But Corrie Ten Boom's wrestling through this and is sitting there at this guy's desk, and she's thinking, what can I do? And she's like, no, I certainly can't kill in the name of justice and compassion. And so she, she asks this guy, can we pray that this Dutch trader would come to realize his worth in the sight of God and the worth of every other human being on earth? That incredible. She recognizes this guy's being a traitor. He's doing what he's doing because he doesn't recognize his worth and his value in the eyes of God. And he doesn't recognize the worth and the value in the eyes of God of those he's seeking to portray. The tour guide who's a Christian, that's a whole Christian ministry in their house now, calls the, the Holocaust the common heritage of all humanity. That there are lessons to be learned at these critical points in time about human nature and what's possible on the evil side but also what's possible on the transformative side and recognizing like Corey Tim Boom, like Nelson Mandela, like Desmond Tutu, like Martin Luther King Jr., recognizing the unity of commonality that we were all created for. That a unity of opposition does nothing but tear us apart and dehumanize all those that are around us. That the deeper truth that unites all humanity is that every human being is created in the image of God. Everyone you know is created to live with God and to live for God. And our responsibility before the Lord is to lay aside our prejudices, to shape our identity in Christ, and to unconditionally love and serve every single human being that God puts in our sphere of influence. It's an incredible privilege, and it's something we can't do without the power of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. We are called to be peacemakers because it's part of our very nature because we're united to Christ and Christ himself was the ultimate peacemaker. Now, one of the things I also love about traveling with the kids on these trips is, is it helps them to see and appreciate other cultures and different ways of doing things. One of my favorite um, Mark Twain quotes, and it actually does come from Mark Twain. There's like a hundred quotes out there on the Internet that apparently don't. Uh, this one comes from a book called The Innocence Abroad. He says, travel is fatal to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts broad wholesome charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime and i would say that that idea extends to social media as well right that idea extends to all kinds of echo chambers that are being built in our communities and the question you have to ask yourself if you want to know if, if you're in an echo chamber is do you appreciate, benefit from, and seek out opinions about life and faith that aren't your own? Right? Or do you just get in a little world and reinforce everything? And here's the other fruit of it. Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness coming out of those interactions? Or is diminishment and some kind of other not spirit of spirit coming out of it? 
Now, we all have one humanity. We all have one need. We are all desperately in need of Christ. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we are all broken. We have all fallen short. We are all part of a common broken humanity that needs salvation in Christ. And John 3.16 reminds us that not only are we one broken humanity, but we're one broken humanity that can depend upon one Savior. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? We hear that verse so often that I think we don't let it have the transformative impact it's supposed to have on us. God loved the world so much that Jesus Christ laid His life down for the world. And God loved you so much that He adopted you into His family so that you can extend diminishment and love and hate and discord into the world. No, right? How can I divide in the name of Christ? How can I hate in the name of Christ? How can I diminish somebody else in the name of Christ? How can I undermine in the name of Christ? I mean, church split should never exist, right? How can you split a church in the name of Jesus? People always claim it's the name of truth and name of Christ, but bull most of the time. I challenge you to show me one split that's yeah, that's the sidetrack. <laughs> But these are real things, right? Like this is this is how our world works. And it's how we get caught up thinking that we are on the side of the angels. You're not on the side of the angels. You're not on the side of Christ unless you're working for peacemaking and reconciliation and love and compassion. That's what Jesus looks like. And so if we see people the way Jesus sees them, we don't see enemies. We don't see others. We see broken image bearers that need Christ. And we see brothers and sisters that were called to uniquely love. And that's it. There's no other view available to you as a follower of Jesus. We are called to, to, to have humility and empathy, and it's critical to helping us understand who Jesus is. We cannot treat other people in a diminishing way without undermining our own humanity and undermining our own understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he's called us to do in this world. We are an extension of the mission of Jesus Christ. We are an extension of the message and the compassion and the life of Jesus Christ. As he did, he now calls us to do. What do you say to his disciples in John twenty twenty one? As the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. And he tells us he's going to go away, but he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit and through his work, his mission will continue. And his mission is not one of discord, division, and hatred. His mission is one of love, compassion, salvation, and reconciliation. All right, secondly, brothers and sisters is a huge category for us. There is no difference that you have that is more powerful than the similarity you have with a brother and sister in Christ. You have been supernaturally through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit adopted eternally into God's family. You are forever united to Christ and you are forever united to every other follower of Christ. Nothing can change that. Nothing is more powerful than that. Not tribalism, not identity politics, not power, not oppression, not confirmation bias. All that stuff is is pushing against your ability to understand who you are in Christ. You You need to understand who we are and how we're called to live. We are never called to live in a unity of opposition against the other. One of my favorite academic terms that's kind of popped up this year, or at least I read for the first time this year, is called virtue signaling. You guys know this term? So virtue signaling is when I'm more concerned about how righteous you think I am than I am how righteous I actually am, or what I actually believe, right? Like suddenly, every 20-something in the world is, is really concerned about the Amazon rainforest for the first time ever. Um, and it was so like deep and rooted in their passion and concern that it continues trending on social media to today, right? 
Oh, no, it doesn't, right? We're on to the next issue. All these kinds of things, are, they're fine. I'm not just, I'm not totally poking fun at them, but sometimes we do this in the, in the church, right? I'm so righteous about my position in the church that I am willing to destroy the church in the name of my own righteousness. We see this in the issue of, of, of women's roles in ministry. We see this in the issues of how LGBT issues are being handled and, and all kinds of things where people take it upon themselves to cause division and strife because they think they're on the side of the angels. They think they're extending the mission of Christ. Does the extension of the mission of Christ ever look like division? Does, it, does the extension of the mission of Christ ever look like a lack of compassion, empathy, and understanding? It's a rhetorical question, right? No, it doesn't. And so these kinds of things should have no place. Unity and harmony, think about this. When you have unity and harmony in the church or among your family, it feels really good, doesn't it? Do you know why it feels good? It's because it's what you were built for. It's how God made you. Now, when you have discord or division or con- you know, conflict going on in the church or in your family, how does that feel? It feels awful, right? It literally like biologically releases chemicals in your body that make you feel terrible. In the same way that harmony releases chemicals in your body that make you feel good. Why? Because you're not created for discord and division and hate. You're acting against your image bearer nature that's been redeemed and renewed in Christ when you embrace those things. It's not who God made you to be. Now, oftentimes we see this happen in the church where, where we fall into the trap of setting yourself against the other in the name of doctrine, right? I love doctrine so much that I hate this other group of Christians over here. How does that work? What does Jesus pray in John 17? He prays that, that our unity would be like unto the unity that he has with his heavenly father. And so a deep passion for Jesus looks like a deep love for God and a deep love and unity for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So you cannot claim to be so passionate about an issue, so passionate about doctrine, so passionate about something. If the fruit of it is not resulting in unity and love, it's not a fruit of the spirit. It's not what God's doing. Now, I think one of the many challenges we have is we get pulled into these cycles that, that, that aren't good and aren't healthy and need to be reminded of things like Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is above all and through all and in all. How many times are all in one mentioned in those just short verses? A lot. Why? Because we are united to Christ and we're united to each other. And this isn't just your local church or your local church and our local church. Who is this? Anyone that believes in God that's calling out to Christ for their salvation. The Apostle Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. If someone believes in God and they're calling out to Christ for their salvation, they're, they're, they're saved. They're called a brother or a sister, hard stop. It doesn't mean we can have the same level of partnership with every group across the, the world, but it does mean that we have we are called to have a, a, a posture of love and service because we have one faith. Listen to the words in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1-2. So this is a church that was dividing amongst themselves and was dividing themselves from the wider body of Christ. Listen to what you think the Apostle Paul is trying to do in these verses as he addresses this church. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Six different times he's pointing them to their unity and connection to the wider body of Christ. There are not many churches. There is one church. Christina Cleveland in a book called Disunity in Christ says this. 
When our common identity becomes more important to us than our smaller cultural identities, former out-group members become fellow in-group members. They are treated like one of us, and we instinctively like them. Now, who is an out-group and an in-group if you're a Christian? There's someone, right? There's broken image bearers that need to be introduced to Jesus, and you're called to love them and, and treat them with dignity and worth and honor and introduce them to Christ. And there's brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a very, very simple, profound, and powerful way of viewing humanity. But here's what we often do. Throw up that cartoon real quick. You can't probably read it all, but this is it says membership class, and the upper left is uh, churches and Christian movements throughout history, and that's 1 AD beginning with Jesus. And then you can see it splinters off into a million different factions. And then the instructors there says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And this little kid says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. This is the problem. Like, that's ridiculous, right? But it's how we do church and denominations in America. We're more right, and we define ourselves against who, who we're against. It, it, it's confirmation bias and identity politics. There are blogs that I love and respect. There are Christian ministries that I love and respect. But I've been challenged by these verses and by this idea to go and look. And I challenge you guys to do this if there's blogs or things you respect. Read an article and ask yourself the question, is it teaching me something more deeply about my identity in Christ and encouraging me to live out that identity? Or is it helping me to understand that my tribe's more right and their tribe's more wrong? Holy smokes, it's enlightening. So much of what's out there is unity of opposition against the other, even among the church. But we have one faith, one Savior, one baptism. Genesis or Galatians 3.27 for those, and these verses are everywhere. I'm just giving you guys a selection. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't say that you cease to be whatever ethnicity you are. It doesn't say that you cease to be a male or a female. What he's telling them is that there's no greater ethnic distinction in the ancient world than Jew and Greek. There's no greater socioeconomic distinction in the ancient world than slave and free. There's no greater gender distinction in the ancient world, obviously, than male and female. But your identity in Christ is more important, more primary, more foundational than your identity in any anything else. Socioeconomics, ethnicity, whatever else. But so much of our time and energy is spent dividing and not thinking more deeply about who Jesus Christ is and what it means for us to serve him. Now, Dr. Seuss is an incredible like lays out so many deep truths. And I love reading these stories to my kids because you see more deep things going on. And there's one of the Sneetches. You can see it here behind me here. There's a book called The Sneetches. And it's in this, in this community, um, this, and this goes beyond politics for all of us, but in this community, there were some Sneetches that were born having a green star in their bellies. And in the beginning of the story, the absence of a green star is a basis for discrimination. And so the Sneetches that have stars in their belly are the in crowd that have more money and more popularity and more fame. And they shun those that don't have them. So in the story, a con man named Sylvester McMonkey McBean appears and he's driving a strange machine and this machine offers Sneetches without stars a chance to have them put on by going through the star machine. So the treatment is instantly popular and everyone without a star goes through the machine and gets a star in their belly. And then McBean is, is, is sitting there stepping back and watching, but now this community has lost their ability to discriminate 
And so then McBean modifies his machine for a star off machine. That'll cost you $10. And so the people that originally were born with stars go to get their stars removed and then start discriminating against those that have the stars. And then those that have the stars want to get back at it. So they go through the machine. And then he says in the end of it, until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. Discrimination in our world today is no more rational and logical than that. It just isn't. There is nothing about the so arbitrary as the color of someone's skin or the country they were raised in or whatever their background is that should give any human being the right to discriminate, diminish, or oppress someone that's different. Desmond Tutu used to say that prejudice on the basis of skin color is as arbitrary as prejudice on the basis of nose size. And he would joke that he was in trouble on both counts. But that's the thing we have to understand. These things aren't just silly and ridiculous. They are radically contrary to what we understand ourselves to be. You're an image bearer of God, redeemed and renewed in Christ. Everyone out there is an image bearer of God that needs to be redeemed and renewed in Christ. Some out there are brothers and sisters that have already been redeemed and renewed in Christ. And so Jesus prays for all of us in John 17 that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me ties it to that if there's not unity and love in the church then the world won't believe the message has any meaning at all whatsoever and jesus prayed this prayer for all christians in all times he prayed this prayer for me he prayed this prayer for us he prayed this prayer for everyone in the world that will ever trust in jesus christ and he prays it for everyone now i think i've, I've heard this for this verse preached and only apply to the four walls of a church our local church needs to be united. Yeah, that's an implication of this passage. But our local church needs to be united as an expression of the union of the wider body of Christ. The division in the church in this country and even in our Bay Area, um, I think, is actually diminishes and empties the gospel of its power. There is, biblically speaking, from a Jesus perspective, no place for division in the church. And so if you're here today and you've seen or experienced bad things in churches in the past, if the church has not been a place of love and unity, but a place of division and judgment, please know those churches and those situations that they grieve Jesus more than they do you. These, these churches that are embracing these things of a lack of love and a lack of charity are living in opposition to God's plan for his wider body of Christ. The, the call for us as a church is high. If we're united, if we're divided, rather, the world will not look at us who claim to be a body of Jesus Christ and yet live divided and, and, and see anything other than division and judgmentalism. Christ gives us the power not only to fight against divisions, but to live in unity and love, to live the way you've been called to live. But it does take work. And it takes an honest assessment of, of where we're all at with our prejudices and where we're all at with how we interact with other human beings. And if you're on social media, and I'm not just picking on that, there's many other ways of advocating for divisive behavior. But if you're on social media, do, do your posts reinforce the commonality of all humanity and lift people up? Or do they reinforce some kind of tribal ethic and division that's in our country? I don't care who you voted for, right? Like if you're, if you're a hardcore Republican, can you with joy and love pray for my congresswoman, Nancy Pelosi? I'm, I literally am in her district. I don't work for her. Um, or if you're, you know, on the progressive side or some would say, anyway, I'm going to behave myself. Can you pray for President Trump in the way you're called to pray for him? 
Can you pray for anyone in our administration and lay your politics aside and recognize that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation and peacemakers in our world and in our society? The, the more divided the world gets, the more the only hope for the world is in followers of Jesus Christ. Because it's, if you're finding your identity in your politics, then if you disagree with me, I have to diminish, denounce, and scapegoat you because you're a threat to my identity. But if my identity is rooted in Jesus, and I know that I am a son or daughter of God, I know that I've been adopted into God's family now and forever, and I'm really rooted there, can anyone threaten your identity by disagreeing with you? Oh, they can't touch your identity, right? They can't touch it. It's in God's hands. Nothing can separate you from it. And so you have the peace and the security in your own identity to then step into a gap where there's division and strife and to try to be a peacemaker and a minister of reconciliation. Christ gives us that power. So what are your prejudices? Who, who do you enjoy hanging out with and who do you not enjoy hanging out with? What, what kind of people do you rarely, if ever, spend time with? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together reminds us of this. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. See what he's getting at? Community isn't your ideal notion in your head. Community is the folks you happen to be surrounded with that you're called to work for love and peace and unity with. Anything else is tribalism and nonsense. It's just homogeneity is not unity. Surrounding yourself with people that view the world the exact same way you do is not unity. It's finding comfort in your comfort. It's finding peace in not being disturbed. It's finding echo chambers so you never have to be introduced to ideas or people that might disagree with you. 1 John 1, 4, 19-21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's harsh language, right? You cannot claim to say, I love God and hate your brother. You're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. All are made a part of God's family. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on later and says... I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. It's getting back to like the Corey Tamboom idea. If you view yourself in common humanity, and there are only those that, that need to understand and be redeemed and renewed in Christ, and, and that if, that may, if it's a non-Christian, it's someone that needs to meet Jesus for the first time. If it's a Christian, it's someone that needs to be reintroduced to the power and the love of grace of Christ if they're calling, causing strife and division in our midst. But this is the reality of our identity. This is, this is the foundation. This is the framework for all of our ethics. Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our Lord. We are entirely wrapped up in who He is and we need to let Him shape our desires. One of my favorite stories um, from the Reformation time period is Martin Luther is explaining to the class the freedom that they have because of their identity in Christ the forgiveness that they have because of their identity in Christ, the grace that they have because of their identity in Christ. And he's saying it's, it's, it's kind of a 1 Corinthians 15.58 idea. Because your salvation's been secured, therefore you're freed up to love and to serve and to live. And the student's getting more and more frustrated in the front row. And, and he finally like shoots his hand up and gets called on it. And, and, uh, and the student says, Professor Luther, if what you're saying is true, then I can do whatever I want. And Luther says, exactly. What is it that you want to do? Get what God does. God frees us up. He adopts us into his family. He supernaturally changes our nature. 
And then he teaches us how to live for him. We, we don't behave to become a follower of Christ. Everything we do should flow from the, the supernatural transformation, inward reality that our identity has been fully and finally transformed in Christ. So you can do whatever you want. God gives you that freedom. But who do you want shaping your desires? Jesus or a divisive culture? Who are you allowing to shape your desire? Some name brand company that tells you you have to wear this shoe or that shoe or that bag or this bag to be what you need to be? Or is it really Jesus? Our desires are being shaped by so many different things and we need to come back and understand that they need to be shaped by Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called the sons of God. I'm going to close with one quote. Um, so I think communion is such a, a wonderful time. I apologize if I'm stealing the thunder of whoever's leading communion. This is from Michael Horton talking about, this is what we proclaim to be true every week when we come. When we take the Lord's Supper, it is a powerful proclamation. It's an outward sign of an inward reality that we have all been transformed and united to Christ and therefore united to each other. And so when we take communion, it's supposed to have a transformative impact on us. When we come up to get the elements, we are coming up as a group recognizing and saying to each other, I'm united to Jesus and I'm united to you. I'm committed to loving and serving you. I'm committed to loving and serving God. It's a powerful thing that we go through and that God then allows us to taste and to experience in a full sensory way together to remind us of who he is and who we are. So Horton says this. How would our conduct towards each other be improved if we allowed the Lord's Supper to really impact the way we live? Could there be churches on either side of the tracks that took no account of each other? Being baptized into capitalism instead of Christ. A political party instead of Christ. Racism instead of Christ. Cultural Christianity instead of Christ. Fill in whatever divides you um, from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have bias and prejudice that affect the way we relate to each other. In many respects, the churches in America today are as divided along socioeconomic, racial, and generational lines as a church in Corinth. By being first and foremost the objective place where God meets and blesses His people, the Lord's Supper becomes also the place where a heavenly society on earth, a colony of Christ's kingdom, refuses to suspend its ever-widening encroachment on the kingdom of sin and death. The Word, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper form a single island of divinely created um, divinely created unity out of the world's divisive rivalries. Here is the place where all are one in Christ. It's not musical style that unites them, the socioeconomic or racial complexion of the community, the age or political orientation. Here in the pew at the table, the only thing that matters is that we are united in Christ. That's your identity. You're a, you are a redeemed and renewed image bearer of God and so you are called to see people as Jesus sees them because he's united you to himself and united you to his mission, and that's who you are. So my prayer for all of us is that we would do a, a more thorough and powerful job of, of living this out because I think it can transform our cities, our neighborhoods, our families, our churches, and put the power of God on display in ways that the world hasn't seen in way too long. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. I pray that you would give us the courage and the power to live out your message and your word and trust in Christ and all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.